Hi, I'm Jeff Sambit, and this is the Ready for Anything podcast, which focuses on communicating through critical events and beyond. Well, let's face it, we're all living through critical events these days, whether we're talking about the global pandemic, local emergencies like wildfires on the West Coast, or hurricane season as it rips into the southern states. And the thing about many of these situations is that often they aren't over in a flash. They can take days, weeks, or months to play out. And that's why it's important as we talk through these issues to keep in mind not just the event itself, but what happens afterwards and even what happens before. So because critical events impact us all, our focus on this podcast has a pretty broad appeal. The issues we'll talk about are relevant to most of us, but that's especially the case if you're responsible for ensuring the safety of large numbers of people, whether that's in a business setting or in a public sector environment like local government, city, state, or province. The guests who'll be joining us are here because of their expertise in the field and not to endorse any particular products or solutions. Now, on today's show, we're zooming in on public safety communications. And more specifically, we'll talk about local governments communicating to the public. A provocative question to kick us off. Is public safety alerting broken? Or is it just time to rethink how it works? Now, as a member of the public, and I'm based in Toronto, Canada, let me tell you my experience with public safety communication. First off, it's been pretty basic. Like over the last 70 years, sirens and radio broadcasts were the most widely used alerts. Then came TV. And I'll never forget as a kid having my favorite show interrupted with one of those terrifying emergency broadcast tests. But new technology has allowed alerts to reach more people faster. And a lot of that is driven by the mobile phones that we all carry. And what we've learned recently, even pre-COVID, public alerts were increasingly used due to more frequent and severe weather events and more non-weather emergencies like active shooters. Why? Increased concern for public safety and security growing since 9-11. And of course, governments doing more to protect the public is hard to argue with. But one thing I've discovered is that how this works has a lot to do with where you live and work. For example, in the U.S., there are three levels of alert, amber, emergency, and presidential, issued by government agencies, so weather services, federal emergency management agency, uh, Department of Homeland Security, state police, etc. There's also an integrated public alert and warning system that uses radio, TV, and, and mobile, and wireless emergency alerts were launched in 2012. Now, here in Canada, we have a national public alerting system called Alert Ready that uses TV, radio, and wireless devices. And since 2018, all wireless service providers must distribute NPAS alerts to subscribers. But as we move from the old world of radio and TV broadcast alerting, new challenges are cropping up. Examples, I mean, you got uh, Hawaii 2018, a false alert of a ballistic missile sent the islands into panic for nearly 40 minutes. Jimmy Kimmel skit back in 2019 simulated alert tones, sparked a $395,000 fine from the FCC in Nova Scotia this year in 2020. Shooting killed 22 people. Security experts say emergency alerts could have saved lives. RCMP instead, well, they used Twitter 
couple of examples right there. Now, lots of challenges, but also solutions. And we'll dive into these topics with two experts today. Our first guest is Magda Solzicki, and Magda is an emergency and business continuity management professional with over 13 years experience within public safety and government critical infrastructure programs. She's a certified emergency manager and associate business continuity professional and holds a master of disaster and emergency management degree. And Magda joins us on the show. Welcome to the show, Magda. Thank you so much for having me. Well, now tell us about the 1033 project that you launched with your coworker, Alicia Khan. So 1033 was something that we kicked off. I actually just did the calculation the other day. I think we're about 50 weeks in running. And it was a project that we kicked off to help small businesses, nonprofits, and emergency social service providers get access to emergency management and business continuity professionals during this time of covid uh, a lot of these organizations didn't have access to these kinds of professionals. This type of consulting and you know, organizational assistance isn't very accessible to many organizations. And so, you know, we saw a lot of a lot of these smaller companies, and I, you know, I'm sure you can see in the news today or in the early phases of COVID that uh, some of the hardest hit areas were exactly these types of uh, service providers. And so a lot of people in our professional community were getting antsy and wanted to do something, weren't quite sure how to do it. So we mobilized this network and brought together professionals from initially it started off in Canada uh, and then it kind of exploded every time we were doing a volunteer onboarding session we'd have a new person pop up from a different part of the world but we ended up amassing at our peak over 90 volunteers from I think six different countries to come help out and pairing them up with organizations that were looking for help to get some assistance with uh, response planning and figuring out how and uh, when to respond to COVID uh, for their for their organization so uh, we still have projects that are ongoing and it's still alive and well, and we've got a really great response from the community and people have asked us to kind of keep going with this project after COVID. So we're kind of looking at how that's going to be revamped for maybe version two of 1033, but that's, that's what it was. That's what it is. And we're really happy to be part of it and proud of what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. So please, uh, please check us out if you need some help. And, and by the way, 1033, that's, that's named after the radio code that's used to signal an emergency. That's the one. Yep. Yeah. Now, in your experience out there in the field, Magda, what are some of the key challenges currently when it comes to public safety communications? Yeah, so it's uh, it's interesting. I think a lot of people see the output side of it, right? They see the message, they hear the, the bing on their phone, or they see the text message pop up, and they, they see they see the kind of product as it hits their, hits their phone. You know, in the last uh, decade plus of kind of working in this area, um, especially being in the in the machine that kind of churns out that message. The hardest part is definitely getting the information in, the right information, right sources of information in, so that you can translate and produce a meaningful message for the public. And, you know, as you can imagine, in a, in a situation like even COVID, right, the number of different experts coming in and the the continually evolving messages, the different kinds of experts weighing in with different opinions and tons of different information coming at you simultaneously, it's really difficult to to churn something out very quickly and meaningful and something that's actionable for the public to, to execute. And so for us, it's always been, and I can, you know, pretty confidently say, I think for a lot of people in my profession or in my sector, it's making sure that we have the right information streaming in so that we can translate and put out a message for the public that is useful for them. How about how the information is collected? Because there's got to be a number of systems in which you'd have to rely to get all that information. Absolutely. So, I mean, I can speak for my sector. You know, I work in the critical infrastructure sector now. Um, on a good day, you're monitoring dozens of different systems simultaneously to to monitor the health of, you know, your your organization, your the services you're running, and that sort of thing. So, 
you know, in a in a very localized emergency that maybe only impacts a smaller community or a, a single organization, it's already complicated enough as it is. You can imagine, right? Like imagine a hospital, for example, right? The number of different things that are happening simultaneously. And if even if it's just one hospital, there's dozens of different things that you're watching every single day to make sure that that hospital is running well and safely. But then you just compound that across a whole city or across a whole province or a country and now the world. And you can see how complex a network of information it becomes and how difficult that it becomes to extricate truth from maybe misinformation and kind of organize everything in such a way that, it, that it, you know, that you can make sense of what's going on. I'll tell you, I, I don't envy the decision makers. Like once uh, the information is gathered and then you go to the step of what happens next, uh, decision makers have to determine what to do with the information that's coming in. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most important things. I think, you know, we kind of break down emergency management into uh, a couple of different phases, but the, one of the most important ones is prevention and, and mitigation and, and preparation. So, you know, you kind of hear that old axiom of uh, a pinch of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It, it really applies here as well, but we kind of look at it more so from a preparation perspective. Of course, if you can prevent the emergency, that's ideal, but in many cases we can't, can't stop a tornado from coming. I know there's a lot of things that, that become very challenging, but you know, the preparation and, and what you have in place in order for you to be able to respond is extremely critical. So typically you'll see a lot of communities uh, conduct these risk assessments and, and they'll kind of try to figure out what is in my environment? What am I potentially at risk of experiencing? Am I uh, in an environment where, you know, I'm a uh, at risk of experiencing tsunamis or landslides or, you know, at risk of tornado, for example. And you can kind of start to bring together information sources that are credible and useful to you in those particular scenarios um, and, and start to prepare. And I think that's a, that's a huge part of, of an effective emergency management system or, or, I guess, program. And that's what a lot of emergency managers do. Spend a good amount of time just planning for what they know, the kind of the known the known unknowns type thing, like you, you, you know that it could happen, you just don't know when, and you do your best to prepare for it. And and but then there's always those ones that blindside you. You know, you you spend a lot of time, you kind of get ready, perfectly ready for this one one crisis, and and then there's a whole other one that comes around the corner you didn't expect. So the good thing is a lot of that that is transferable, and um, a lot of the preparatory activities that we have we can transfer from one emergency to another. But sometimes they catch us off guard, and and we have to pivot and respond really quickly and, and do the best we can under the circumstances that we're faced with. So, Magda, what are some of the challenges for users receiving messages? Well, I think definitely comprehension is a real challenge, like starting just with that. Using the example maybe of the city of Toronto, um, you look at our demographics here. For example, we have over 100 diff- 180 different languages, I think, uh, when I last checked, uh, spoken in the city of Toronto. A good chunk of our population speaks neither English nor French as well as their primary language. And so you're right off the hop experiencing some challenges with, with comprehension. Also, flexibility of devices, right? And among different demographic groups, you have some people who absolutely hate and never use devices, their cell phones, tablets, what have you. And there's some who can't be separated from it for more than two seconds. <laughs> um, and so finding the right balance of uh, getting that information to them in the right manner and understanding you know, who your audience is, and, and just using the city of Toronto again as that example, what your composition is, who you're talking to, and how they prefer or how they even need to get their message, you know, taking into account things like accessibility and offering multiple different ways in which people can get that message, um, depending on their accessibility needs as well. Those are definitely things that on top of already the complexity of generating the message, uh, putting it out there becomes all the more complicated when you're when you're working in this diverse community. So these are all these are all things I think, you know, as a as a maker of the message, so to speak, you're thinking about, but also, you know, on the flip side, being the receiver, you know, you want to see a message that is easily accessible to you. Uh, and so these are all things that I have to think about the language, the 
the tone or the the reading comprehension level even is something that you have to factor in. Where can listeners find out more about you, Magda, and the work that you're doing with the 1033 Project? Definitely check out www.1033.ca. I'd encourage you to check out that website. You'll find links to other work I've done as well on there. And of course, you know, for more information around this type of alerting, I definitely encourage people to go to, you know, credible sources talking about information and communication. Go to credible sources, go to Public Safety Canada or your federal emergency management agency websites. Uh, Go to your government sources to find the right information about about the programs and the projects that they're working on and, and more information about these alerting systems. I think it's important to go to the source and, and I encourage people to go there to get that information. Emergency and business continuity management professional Magda Selzicki. Magda, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be joined by our next guest whose involvement in public safety covers well, just about every angle imaginable after this. Major storms, cyber attacks, public health crises, domestic terrorism. Is your organization ready to face these kinds of events? BlackBerry Ad Hoc delivers up-to-the-minute awareness, secure communications, and interagency collaboration before, during, and after a crisis. The public and private sector organizations that trust BlackBerry Ad Hoc for critical event management aren't just saving time, resources, and property. They're saving lives. It's the easy, secure, and centralized approach to planning, managing, and remediating critical events. Be ready for what's next. Visit blackberry.com slash ad hoc. That's A-T-H-O-C. Our second guest is Mike Akpada. And as I say, Mike is a public safety expert from just about every possible angle. His career in public service included 21 years with the Windsor Police Service as a senior constable in investigations and 26 years as a Canadian infantry reservist. He was deployed to Afghanistan in 2007. Now, Mike is also a city councillor in the town of LaSalle near Windsor, right near the U.S. border. And he finds time to act as the North American lead for policing, public safety and investigations at BlackBerry. And Mike, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Very happy and very privileged to be here. Thank you very much. Well, now, in your experience, Mike, with critical event communications, what does the public actually want? Well, I think what the public wants is they want to know everything at speed. And I don't blame them. You you think about how quickly we can order a pizza, how quickly we can get our groceries delivered. And when things go sideways, the number one concern that people have is for their families and the safety of their families. And with the technology that we have, we're used to getting things in microseconds. And when it comes to a critical incident, they want to be made aware as quickly as possible so they can make the appropriate decisions to mitigate their risk and take care of their families. Now, what about the types of alerts that one would receive? Because we we get so many nowadays. What about having that kind of control? Well, and again, here's where it starts to get sticky and dicey. Like you said, so many alerts that people may become desensitized. When law enforcement puts out an Amber Alert, of course, it always seems to be at three o'clock in the morning and people get very, very upset. But when we start to get weather alerts, we appreciate it. When we start to get highway alerts, I drive down the 401 every now and again, and I get to certain points, and I wonder how people who live in certain areas deal with 300 hours of of backup on a road. But those alerts become part and parcel of our life, and we become dependent on them, and we expect them because we make decisions. Do I pull off and get off on this exit, or do I 
take a chance and keep going. Do I go out and see what's going on right now? Do I go to my basement? Do I have to bring the dog in? All of these little things affect the human factor of folks in communities. And that's what we want to make sure that we do is reach out to them and give them the best information so they can make the most appropriate decision. And, and tailored to their individual needs, uh, I, I'm sure. And, you know, now Canadians, I would think, would be more likely to sign up for, you know, emergency emails, texts, apps, what have you, because, well, let's face it, we've gotten used to technology over the past number of years. I agree. And if we look at what's going on right now, I have a 14 and a 15 year old. And my daughter reminded me that school now is nothing like when I went to high school. And I have to agree with her. She's got her own computer. She's on her smartphone. All of her devices are integrated and she gets immediate response from a teacher when she sends that sort of request for help. So she's going to grow up and eventually is going to expect that when something goes sideways in the community, she's notified as quickly as she gets the support from her teacher. We want to make sure though that the specific information that people need goes to them in a timely manner so that they're able to separate the wheat from the chaff and make the most appropriate decision and sign up to get them. The purpose of these alerts is to let the public know that something is not normal and therefore give them options to either participate by using their eyes and reporting to the police or remove themselves from the circumstance and therefore mitigating the response that's needed from first responders to assist folks who decided to say and watch the meltdown of the nuclear reactor because it might look neat. So there's the double sort of edged sword. The more information you give out, there's an expectation that people will respond accordingly and appropriately. And they're going to come to want this information at all times, on all devices, whether they're in the car, whether they're watching TV, whether they're watching something that they're streaming or on their smartphone. And we have to be able to give it to them because if we take out one of the steps of the components, that's going to be the day when something serious happens and people are going to go, well, I I didn't receive it. I didn't know. And that's the problem that we have right now is getting people to sign up, getting people to commit and letting the technology shake itself out so that if I do get a Amber Alert, I don't lose my mind at three o'clock in the morning. Well, so th- these messages that that we are to be getting, uh, they're going to arrive quickly. They are going to be more clear. They are going to be um it's going to contain the most information that is pertinent to the message and technology is going to enable the public to be able to support those giving out those messages to to arm them with more information that should be shared on a on a huge platform like this 100% you nailed it imagine you are a law enforcement agency and a child has been taken Look at the thousands of eyes now looking for that license plate once you push that information out. The thousands of folks that will open their homes to that child. The thousands of people who are looking and looking for that car or looking for that license plate and thereby becoming a force multiplier on the side of good. Our first responders need help. And by pushing out these alerts, you make every citizen a sensor. And therefore, we can resolve some of these incidents without the person putting themselves at risk. But simply by seeing that car going by and calling it in, law enforcement or public safety agencies can focus their limited resources in the best possible way to ensure the best possible outcome. What about how technology can help create more of a unified response from various organizations? I use my career as a Windsor police officer as an example. 
we had the privilege of working with some of the American law enforcement agencies, whether it was Michigan State Police, Detroit Police, or Detroit Fire, or even the border people. And it becomes very, very difficult when your sole goal is to catch bad guys and you can see someone who can assist you and you can't speak to them on a radio. You are on different frequencies and they don't know that you're a good guy either and sometimes things go sideways. So from, from my perspective, the more integrated we can become with our public safety communication systems, the better the outcome. Because at the end of the day, every single public safety agency exists for one purpose, to serve the public, to mitigate risk, to make sure that people are safe. Because no matter where you are in the world, that's all people want. They want their family to be fed, warm, and secure. And if we can use technology to achieve the security component, then I think that's something that we should do and and better on all of us for participating in these emerging technologies. Well, from security to, to privacy, Mike, because when we start talking about government communications, of course, a lot of people worry about privacy. How do we know that our contact details are, are safeguarded where there are so many breaches going on? Well, you have to do your due diligence. So I look at it this way. Everybody who carries an app on their phone has, of course, read the 43 pages of the agreement. Everybody who goes onto any social media platform has, of course, read all those things on the agreements. And we have to accept that there's a trade-off. There's a trade-off that we make for living in this society. I can be untraceable if I don't have a smartphone, and I don't use my debit card, and I don't use credit cards. But when my children are locked out of the house, they can't get in touch with me. So I get a smartphone. And now somebody knows where I am if the GPS location's on. We have to boil this down to the balance between what we want, what we expect, and what we're willing to give up. I am prepared to give up a little bit of my privacy to be able to be reached at a point in time where I need information. Now, we also have to have some faith in the organizations that are collecting that information, and they have to be ultra responsible. Because you think about it, if the province of Ontario had a database that had everybody in it, that's a bad guy's dream. Because you look at some of the people who'd be in it, Justin Bieber would be in it, the premier would be in it, the prime minister would be in it. And there's people who have nefarious reasons to go after that data. And it's incumbent on those collecting the data to know and to harden their infrastructure to make sure that once they have my personal information, they protect it. And it's only used for the purposes intended and so that I can feel safe in giving it. And once we have that understanding, we will be able to be more interconnected across the province and across the country. Well, given that everything that's going on in the world right now, Mike, uh, this certainly seems to be the time to institute a, a connected communication strategy. But why have we gotten to this point? Why hasn't this solution been implemented to this point? So these are the questions that we have to ask. And I, I again, will use a cross-border Example, there was a time when you could cross the border with a birth certificate and a driver's license. And then we realized that bad people were taking advantage of that system. So again, for us as the good people, we have to direct, cajole, and speak to government to say this is important. I hate to bring this example up, but if you look at what happened in Nova Scotia, that active shooter, I believe it was 90 kilometers is how far that incident took place. Multiple jurisdictions, multiple people, and an alerting solution could have, may have 
saved lives, may have caused people to move to different locations, but it could not have made the matter worse. And this is the thing about technology. We have to be the masters of technology and we have to give it to people so that they can use it to better their existence. It costs. So there's a trade-off right now with government and everything that's going on. Let's look at how much money the Canadian government is spending maintaining CERB, maintaining our economy. And an alerting solution may fall low on the list of priorities because there's a lot of juggling that's going on right now. But the public has to direct those that have the privilege of being in positions of power to understand that they have not a paternalistic responsibility to take care of us, but they have to do the right thing and the best thing for the people they have the privilege of being elected representatives for. And that may be an alerting solution to keep people aware of what's transpiring in their own neighborhoods, in their own backyard. Public safety expert, Mike Ekpada. Mike, appreciate your expertise on this. Thank you so much. Thank you for the time. I enjoyed uh, the company. As we continue, we'll tell you about what's coming up in episode two of the Ready for Anything podcast. When keeping the public safe is your number one priority, you need a communications approach you can trust. That's why local governments and universities choose BlackBerry Ad Hoc, Public Safety Edition, for critical event management and communication. It's the proactive way to deliver accurate information directly to the public on everything that affects their well-being, from traffic advisories to severe weather events to health emergencies. Local residents and visitors can opt in, set up a profile, control how they're notified, and even respond to confirm their safety or let you know they're in trouble. Secure, targeted communications deliver the right message to all the right people, right when it matters. Save time, resources, property, and lives. Visit blackberry.com slash ad hoc. That's A-T-H-O-C today. Thanks for joining the Ready for Anything podcast. We'll move from this discussion around public safety to episode two, where we'll address employee scenarios in organizational settings. Thanks for listening.